Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Tell me the rest of your story. I love vacation stories. The sea was angry that day, my friends, like an old man trying to send back soup in the deli. What are you, what are you talking about? Oh, that's from Seinfeld. Seinfeld? You know, the show Seinfeld. Was it on Broadway? Boutros, Boutros, Gali. You mean the UN guy? Did he have something to do with it? Pretty sad track record. Somalia, Rwanda, the breakup of Yugoslavia. Still, I think he absorbed too much of the blame for the Angolian Civil War, don't you? I don't judge. Who among us hasn't slipped into the break room to nibble on a love Newton? I don't follow what... It's a Peterman thing, you know? It reminds me of the Haitian rattle torture. You know, I feel like you're speaking an entirely different language. Look, Mulva. That's not my name. You know that's not my name. Yes, but if I didn't know your name, but I knew your name rhymed with a part of the female anatomy, I might guess it was Mulva. Maybe I should explain. I was a missionary in Burkina Faso from 1989 to 1998, and I missed a lot of things. I sometimes feel left out of American culture. Burkina Faso? Burkina Faso. Yo-yo ma! The cellist? Is that a cellist? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I should explain that I'm from a distant star. On my journey here to Earth, the only things I saw were episodes of this program called Seinfeld. It taught me everything I know about this planet and its cultures. That's really cute. You're really cute. I am spongeworthy, I assure you. Okay, we're going to have to take this kind of slow. Maybe we should listen to this radio show about Seinfeld. And now he became obsessed with Parker Lewis Can't Lose and missed the whole Seinfeld thing. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I was not aware that Seinfeld was this big deal in the 90s. I was watching Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I knew all the catchphrases, too. All the Parker Lewis Can't Lose concepts and ideas that are now permanently embedded in American culture. The Seinfeld stuff I was uh, not quite so aware of. So I have to say a couple of things. First of all, that preparing for this show has been an unusual experience, not only for me, but for the people who work anywhere near me. Because, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to be working, right? Well, I mean, to prepare for the show, the main thing I had to do was watch clips and old Seinfeld YouTube videos, which means I've just been sort of sitting in my office or standing in my office cackling for the last two days. (laughs) So it doesn't really seem like I'm putting in hard days here, but... uh, the entire time my mind is worrying. I'll tell you the other thing. Uh, I decided we ought to do this show earlier this summer when I realized, when I saw an article about the fact that some minor league baseball team, apropos of the 25th anniversary of the birth of Seinfeld, uh, was doing this contest. It was a, an Elaine Bennis bad dancing contest. So be, uh, people, women would go out into the field and dance badly uh, in the manner of Elaine. And You know, just noticing that, I I thought, wow, there just are so many little cultural codes embedded now in us because of this program, this program that really did invest, uh, did represent in many ways a kind of Socratic investigation into what the unexamined rules of life really are, the unexamined behaviors, and that there really isn't a program anything like that. that. Uh, Seinfeld stands alone that way, I think. There are other really great sitcoms, but you can't say that about them. 
Uh, anyway, that's my premise. As we go along here, we'll be happy to take your phone calls at 860-275-7266. Let me tell you about our guests, all of whom uh, we're very excited about, starting out with, uh, in the NPR studios in Washington, Roger Catlin, a blogger and freelance writer uh, in D.C. His work appears in the Washington Post and Salon.com. Uh, years ago, uh, Roger was with the Hartford Current uh, with me. Uh, also with us, another person from my past. Uh, I'll pop him up on the board right now, although a far more distant past. John O'Hurley, actor, television personality, author, uh, the host of the host of the game show Family Feud, author of three books, including The Perfect Dog. And uh, of course, uh, he was Jay Peterman, uh, Elaine's boss on Seinfeld. Uh, we should say that John and I went to school together for four or five years and, and uh, performed together in, in productions both of us would probably like to forget. And also with us, Andrew, Andy Robin. Um, I've actually gone to the uh, trouble of, of printing out a copy of Andy Robin's Wikipedia entry just because of the final uh, line in it, which I think is almost Seinfeldian in its nature. It says, he is not Andy Robin, Scottish wrestler and friend of Hercules the Bear. Andy Robin, do you ever wish you were the Scottish wrestler and friend of Hercules the Bear? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It seems like um, no, it seems like a very cool cool life, a, a much cooler life than mine. <laughs> well, your life's pretty cool anyway. Andy Robin is a physician, writer and director. He started his career at Saturday Night Live and spent several seasons uh, at Seinfeld. Um, we should say he's also from Stanford and attended West Hill High, which means the the, the politics of Stanford High School, Rip Wom versus Stanford High versus West Hill are it's this, they're like warring Balkan states. It's something you almost don't even want to step into. But we know you didn't go to Stanford High because you'd have to have name a name of one syllable on each name, like Dave Gold, Bruce Block, Doug Carp. Everybody at Stanford High had uh, two syllable names. All right. Are you from Are you from Stanford? No, but I went to school with a lot of those. I went to college oh, with okay. a lot of those people. Um, oh, okay. Cool. All right. So where to begin? Uh, um, all of our guests are here. We uh, can't wait to hear from you as well. But Roger, I am going to begin with you because you're the critic. And so, what do you think of my thesis that that really, you know, as you look at Seinfeld, I mean, it's a lot of different things, and it's basically uh, above all else a very, very funny television show. But it's also this real investigation to what are the rules? What are the unwritten rules? Who can tell a Jewish joke? I mean, how many valid opinions can there be about using a handicap space? When is it too late to ask a person her name if you didn't catch it the first time? Um, you know, uh, in these little kind of undocumented physical things of life, the first episode mentions the orange indicator on a coffee urn that, that proves to you that you're actually getting decaf. You know, all these little sort of codes of life. <laughs> that we don't ever really talk about. They're sort of all there. I, Roger, react to that a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, it's not so much those ladies in the baseball stadium were doing Elaine Bennis bad dancing, but Elaine Bennis was a commentary on the occasional person who thinks they're a good dancer, but they're a terrible dancer. It's just really good observations on everyday things, and I think that's the basis of a lot of good comedy. Specifically, it was, it was the basis of Seinfeld's stand-up routine before he got involved with uh, the sitcom. He'd take one little thing that everybody recognized and say, I mean, people made fun of him for it after a while. What's the deal with this? Uh, <laughs> but that's that's exactly what Seinfeld did through its... Through its uh, you know, nine seasons. And and I think it was, you say, it's never been done since. I think Larry David has continued it right. pretty strongly with Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, you know, Seinfeld 
fans will certainly recognize the same kind of inquiries in that show. Well, I would I would go a little bit further with the Elaine thing and say that, um, you know, if Socrates and one of his followers are walking around the Lyceum or wherever they were walking around, the question they might be asking is, in a world in which dancing is free form, in which, I mean, when we get to John in just a second, of course, John O'Hurley is a terrific dancer and was uh, on Dancing with the Stars and essentially won. Um, but most of us just do kind of free form dancing. In a world of free form dancing, can you be either good or bad at that kind of dancing. Uh, and, of course, it turns out you can be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's, that's the philosophical question that gets asked. <laughs> so, um, so um, Andy Robin, with that in mind, I mean, it, I don't know if there's a way that you can re- recreate for us the genesis of a Seinfeld episode. Um, I mean, I, I, how, would it, how would it begin? What would you be told uh, about what you might be working on or what would you tell someone? He's at a loss for words. Either that or he's hung up. He's hung up on us. Okay, I'll slide over for a second. John O'Hurley, first of all, good to hear your voice again. <laughs> you as well. I'm uh, one of the few people that has the advantage of uh, knowing you in your misspent youth. Exactly. So, you know, w- one of the other qualities that Seinfeld had is that, in a way, certain things on Seinfeld would become more real within the universe of Seinfeld than they were anywhere else. And, and you're the, the primary example of it. I think I've read or heard somewhere that when you and the actual person who is named Jay Peterman, the original founder of the catalog, uh, appear together, you are addressed as Peterman rather than him, right? Well, it is, yeah. The the kind of P.S. to the, uh, the Seinfeld story is that... Uh, a year after Seinfeld ended, the real J. Peterman company went through some uh, uh, some financial difficulties. They went into Chapter 11, and uh, within six months later, they called me because they'd gotten the intellectual property back. And John Peterman called me and said, let's put the company back together under our parallel strengths. And so he and I became the J. Peterman company. So to say that I played the character on TV and now I own it. <laughs> uh is uh, is the absolute, is the is the odd truth and uh I'm on the board and when we walk down Madison Avenue together people roll down their windows and scream hey Peterman and they're not talking to him and and so Roger Catlin this is a nice example of also the the dragging forward of a, a tiny little detail of everyday life i mean i know a little bit of uh, what your life has been like. You probably, like me, reading The New Yorker for years. That's where you would see it, right? In The New Yorker, if you're reading an article and there would be an ad, and it would usually show this hat, and it would say, <laughs> right. it would say Peterman, J. Peterman. Right. And I never thought too much about it, but clearly um, Larry David and, and, and Jerry Seinfeld were looking at that same ad and maybe looking at the calendar and thinking, well, what's the world behind that, right? Exactly. And it's a perfect place for Elaine to work, too, where she, at one hand, she would be very good and attracted to this kind of high-profile company. On the other hand, she'd just be repulsed by all the things she had to do All right, so and let's, all the rules let's involved. He, let's hear uh, John O'Hurley slash Jay Peterman uh, in, in one of his earliest encounters with Elaine. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I don't even know where I'm going. Well, that's the best way to get someplace you've never been. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Have you been crying? Yeah, see, this, this woman, this is manicure. Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter why. That's a very nice jacket. Oh, thanks. Very soft. Huge button flaps, cargo pockets, drawstring waist, deep by swing vents in the back, perfect for jumping into a gondola. How do you know all that? That's my coat. You mean? Yes. I'm Jay Peterman. 
John O'Hurley, when you read the, the script uh, on the page, it's, it's hard to tell whether this is sort of intrinsically funny or not. When somebody handed you the script, did you think, ah, I'm about to become an immortal comedy figure? No, the exact opposite. Uh, actually, they didn't have a script. Seinfeld was the most disorganized show on television. <laughs> we never had a complete script at the, uh, at the, um, at the reading. And uh, uh, so they, she had heard the idea that she would be working for me was something that was decided on later in the week. Um, the, uh, and, and they actually handed me the catalog before they even hand, showed me a script. They just said, we, I just want him to sound the way the catalog is written, as though this stuff just trips off his tongue with a, with a price, a size, and an availability attached. Uh, so that was it. And it just brought back, you know, the first time I read it, it reminded me a little bit of a 40s radio drama combined with a, a bit of a bad Charles Kuralt. And uh, so that was kind of the, uh, the genesis of the character. But I had truly no idea what was going on. Okay, I think we're back in touch with Andy Robin. Let me ask you my question again. And John just mentioned the word genesis. How how did anything ever start on Seinfeld? In other words, how, how do, is are you able to sort of recreate for us the birth of an idea or a trope that you would build up into an episode? So we were. So the whole thing is very mysterious. I'm not sure. You know, we, nobody had any reliable place to go to find story ideas. Um, Sometimes I, I just remember everybody was just in this constant state of desperation for a good idea. And you're kind of you're mining your personal life for funny things and uh, your history. Um, it kind of it kind of put a, a crimp in my social life because I was living this meta existence. Every every time a conversation with friends or something seemed uh, threatened to get funny, I would start thinking about it as an idea that I could use and start, you know, pulling myself out of the present. Um, so, you know, some, some things were funny things that you, you'd thought about often from, from way back when characters, people you'd met, um, family members, but there was no, there was no pattern. Uh, the writers all had different, um, sort of strengths and, you know, very different sensibilities. So, uh, like the show, I think, I, I don't think people realize how, uh, how um, varied the different the styles of the shows are, but if you you know you look at that first season or even the first few seasons, they're very different. The stories are much more realistic and quieter than uh, later shows, which you know it doesn't mean better or worse. It's just very different. Um, I don't know. That's a long-winded answer. No, but we love your long-winded answer. Let me ask you another question, which is: uh, Is there a particular example that you can think of of something that happened in your life, something that you detected, or a phrase that you picked up, or uh, a little physical detail that wound up uh, in the series as a result of your kind of meta thinking about your own existence? Well, sure. Lots of stories came from things we were doing around the office. Um, so there was uh, one of one of many stories that I that I mined from daily work at Seinfeld was um, was from the very first time uh, I pitched to Larry and Jerry. I was really nervous. I was a big fan of the show. And um, I, I put together these stories uh, for what would become the Junior Mint episode, and, and it seemed to go pretty well. And at the end of my pitch, Larry said, well, this, you know, this is good. Um, I want you to write this script. And that was pretty much the end of the meeting. And I thought, okay, well, Larry David wants me to write the script. Now he's got to lobby for me. He's got to, like, talk to the network or talk to the other producers and – um, and, it, and many days later, I still hadn't heard anything. And my agent calls and said, you didn't tell me that you got the script. And I said, well, I didn't. Larry said he wants me to do it. But 
and you know I didn't realize that Larry was uh, you know the buck stopped there so <laughs> so that became a story in um, I forget which episode but George goes gets a job the guy says George you know I like you I want you to have this job of course and he's interrupted after he says of course the phone rings and George never finds out whether you know what the conditions were on his employment um, <laughs> so that that was you know and from that very same first meeting with Larry and Jerry, they couldn't find the box of raisins mm-hmm. that was in the room um, after I had left, and they wondered if I had stolen the raisins, and that became another story. So, you know, any any little thing that happened around the office um, had a good chance of making its way into a script. And the, I have to say about the raisin thing, uh, one of our, one of the people who works here, our former producer Patrick Scahill, who's now a reporter uh, here, is a Seinfeld archivist, as people tend to be, or just sort of a mental archivist. And so every time something happens, he now, in our office, he has a Seinfeld uh, reference point for it. And we did have, I forget who it was, but somebody was here, and we, we give people water in, in mugs, in these sort of mu- station mugs that have the... Uh, insignia on it or the name of one of the shows and they're supposed to drink the water and then put the mug down and leave and whoever it was he walked off with the mug and and immediately patrick circle circulated around that the, the raisins clip he said oh we just got raisined or or something like that uh so it it, it sort of does come full circle that way um it, now first of all let me sort of reintroduce everybody if you're just tuning in and we may have to explain certain things because uh, as Kion Wolf was pointing out before we started the show, I mean, Seinfeld is like one enormous private joke. Either you know what all these things mean, you know what the Junior uh, Mince episode is, or you don't. And I'm assuming that some people who are listening might be in that latter category. So we have to make sure they, they don't feel completely excluded. Uh, Roger Catlin, a blogger, freelance writer, TV critic in D.C. He's with us from the NPR Washington studios. John O'Hurley, uh, forever uh, to be known as Jay Peterman, but many other things as well as an actor, television personality and author. Andy Robin is a former writer and producer for Seinfeld and not a Scottish wrestler or a friend of Hercules the Bear. Please don't call us with any questions about that, but you can call us at 860-275-7266. John, you know, I want to come back to you for a second because, uh, you know, Andy Robin was talking about how as this series grew, it grew in a different way. Instead of being constantly about this minutely observed detail of New York life and daily life, it got more and more fanciful. It got more and more, uh, it reached further. And Peterman's kind of an example of that, right? He's, he's in a way, he's a... Good, that's a very good observation. Yeah. If you look at the arc of the show, it, uh, it moved from more, uh, more of a pedestrian uh, kind of, you know, New York being uh, an elevator that uh, could fit uh, uh, 10 people in it, had 12 people in it. It became less about that and became more about the kind of the surreality of life. And they took many more chances. The show became much more physical over the uh, the last few years. Um, uh, you know, I look at a lot of uh, the, the the way that Michael Richards' character uh, grew even to kind of a um, kind of a cartoon version of what Dick Van Dyke used to do. That uh, you know, the tripping over the sofa. I mean, there was he was always going to do some some sort of pratfall on a show that was kind of built in. But it just represented the arc of the show. I think it became much more surreal. And yes, Peterman represented that because he was. I mean, Peterman was kind of like the. Um, uh, I guess the Mr. Magoo of the, <laughs> the turn of the century. He was uh, kind of a, a corporate lunatic. Well, he was sort of inhabiting the show and also inhabiting a completely separate reality, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. he, he's, he's part of the lives of these four characters, but there's a sense that there's this whole other Peterman universe going on that we'll never see that he'll be constantly speaking of in this highly stylized way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, 
it was uh, yeah it was kind of it, it was a, a Hemingway novel taken to an absurd degree. <laughs> So, um, well, I have, we have so many questions to ask, and there are many people calling in with questions. We should probably grab a break here. Our number, 860-275-7266. We'll be back with John, Andy, and Roger after this. My name is George. Ask Jerry, I'm Cosmo Kramer, the Yes Man. Ask Jerry, I'm Cosmo Kramer, the Yes Man. You bite it, you bought it, you bite it, you bought it. Just, all right, just do it. Then, in the distance, I heard the bulls. But I began running as fast as I could. Fortunately, I was wearing my Italian Capto Oxfords. <laughs> Sophisticated, yet different, without making a huge fuss about it. Rich, dark brown calfskin leather. Matching linen vamp. Men's hole in half sizes, 7 through 13. Price $135. Oh, that's not too expensive. I like that shirt. Where did you get it? Oh. This innocent-looking shirt has something which isn't innocent at all. Touchability. <laughs> Heavy, silky, Italian cotton, a fine, almost terry cloth-like feeling. Five-button placket, relaxed fit. Innocence and mayhem at once. That's not bad. <laughs> So everybody's uh, laughing uh, at that. And so and one of the things that Seinfeld is about, I think, is, is about language, very specifically about language. So we have Peterman and we'll come back to him in a second. But uh, here he's just talking very much in the language of his own catalog. But as he goes on, he becomes this almost, uh, you know, in, in the episodes that follow this kind of almost Edwardian speaker or even older than that. He's like uh, a character out of Thackeray and the way that he kind of inverts language and speaks in very old fashioned ways. But Roger Catlin, it seems to me one of the things that this show does in a way that I've I think is without parallel, except for, as you say, curb your enthusiasm, is examine what language means and, and, and what conventions mean. You know, Andy was just talking about uh, the episode where, uh, you know, you, you get the job, of course. And there's something that follows that, that, of course, of course, now means something. And, and there's like there's a whole sort of bunch of semiotic information built up there. Well, of course, whatever follows, of course, has to be kind of it has to kind of contravene whatever's good about getting the job. It's it's it's, it's similar to that, uh, to what they did in Curb Your Enthusiasm, where they all explored the the convention. Having said that, uh, whatever right. follows that has to undercut whatever came before. But I, I don't think I don't know if there's a, a show like that that has really sort of looked at language quite that way, the way that people talk. And the deeper story is that it's just how we all interact. I mean, it's just how we kind of flail around at trying to connect and and, uh, and using just the exact, the correct phrase. But there's a deeper thing, too, I think. Uh, you know, when they had that episode with, where uh, Jerry was suspected of being gay or something and... Uh, and they had to. They added every time someone said that, they said not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm. I think that was a very important episode because I think it 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 came at a time when people were starting on sitcoms too. I mean, that was if someone was suspected to be gay, that was that was the punchline. Like that was supposed to be funny enough for people. And suddenly, at this most popular sitcom that was around, they kept saying not that there's anything wrong with that. 
And it was, in one hand, it's a commentary on, oh, you know, not that I would think that there would be anything wrong with that. There are liberals in New York. But also it kind of just seeps into your mind, no, there isn't anything wrong with that. And and I think that was a very important uh, turning point for using that as a, as a comic, uh, you know, end, end point. Yeah, if hi. Someone's gay. Um, yeah, Andy, I'm not sure you could uh, you could hear all that. Could you oh, hear? I'm sorry. No, for some reason I can't hear when Roger's speaking. Well, okay, so yeah, Ro- that's no, the, I found that to be true most of my life. Oh, yeah. People, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we've actually sort of added a special feature where you can't hear Roger speaking. So <laughs> it happens throughout my life. A technological modification we make. Well, he's talking about the um, he's talking about the, the the not that there's anything wrong with that. And I'll ask both you uh, and John a little bit about that because I think that's an example of a phrase that Im- has embedded itself in the language. It now has a kind of strength that exists. I mean, Roger was sort of saying, well, it really, in in many respects, also reflected in a very serious way what changing attitudes were at that moment. But it's also... It's now. Yeah, it's kind of. It had an effect. Yeah, it's stuck in the language right now, Andy. I mean, you. It must be interesting to have worked on a show where there are phrases like that 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 will never be used the same way again. <laughs> oh, sure, definitely. Um, it's. Uh... It's a kick to hear stuff you help create repeated um, and kind of catch on, and it does and it, and it does sort of force you to think about things like the not that there's anything wrong with that. To me, says uh, it, it's like a step backwards. It's a very stigmatizing phrase. It's actually kind of saying, I think there's something seriously wrong with that. Um, other, you know, why why take the time uh, and energy to say that? unless there was something that sort of bothered you somehow. Well, see, now I actually think we could have a a Socratic conversation about that because uh, I'll tell you how I read it. I I had an experience this summer that that kind of hammered this home. So uh, as for a magazine assignment, I was on a tour in Europe of tandem bike riders. Well, it turned out there were 79 tandem bikes that were being ridden by heterosexual couples. And then this a male photographer and I were riding the other bike. And we're not a gay couple, and we, for some reason or other, felt it was important that these 79 other heterosexual couples know that we're not a gay couple. But we did keep tacking on, not that there's anything wrong with that, (laughs) because it was simultaneously important for us to be identified as what we were, but also very important for us to sort of drive home the point that we wouldn't have felt stigmatized if we were something else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's really funny. Yeah. So and and so John O'Hurley in, in some ways this is another sort of distinction about Peterman right that that everybody else is speaking the language of New York circa 1990 we're going to talk about yada yada in just a second here mm-hmm. but but Peterman really in some ways he is that sharp contrast he doesn't talk the way everybody else talks no he was lyrical and 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 I think that was and Andy I may be putting words in your mouth but I I think uh, from what I remember of speaking to the writers, they all enjoyed writing the Peterman character because they didn't have to write in single sentence or single word jokes, if you will. Not that there really were any setups and jokes, but but they could write long form with Peterman and that, you know, they could write these long flowing monologues that were more often than not cut from the show because it was always too long. But they, they had the ability to write, you know, longer and, and create a, a, you know, a different style of comedy uh, with monologues. Drew, that's, yeah, that sounds right on to me. Um, there is something about that, and there's something about the way in which um, 
Peterman kind of is that person. He's also recognizable. He's not so exotic that he's not recognizable. He is the person who maybe works in your office or maybe once upon a time you worked in an office where there was somebody who spoke really differently from everyone, everyone else, but also kind of assumed that he was speaking the vernacular, you know, the, the way that everybody else talks. So Peterman will say something like, who among us has not slipped into the break room for to nibble on a love Newton or, or whatever it is that he says? As if that were, he says it in a way that sort of suggests, and John, a lot of this is your delivery, as if everybody would know exactly what he's talking about. Exactly. I remember turning to Elaine once and saying, Elaine, do you have any idea what happens to a butter base frosting after six decades in a poorly ventilated British basement? I have a feeling what you're about to go through will be punishment enough. <laughs> All right. So I, it's good that you can still quote these things, too. That's impressive. Oh, I can't. They never leave you. Um, so I'm about to ask Roger something, and you won't be able to hear him, but we'll uh, we'll figure that out somehow, too. So actually, before I do that, let's play the yada yada clip. To me, this is the, this is the super supreme example in some ways, or one of the supreme examples, if there can be more than one supreme, of, um, of Seinfeld's linguistic explorations. Are you close with your parents? Well, they gave birth to me and yada yada. Yada what? Yada, yada, yada. Engaged <laughs> to be married. Uh, we bought the wedding invitations and uh, yada, yada, yada. I'm still single. <laughs> So what's she doing now? Yada. So, and this all sort of arises from uh, a, a situation where uh, George, I think his, his, his girlfriend has been with a different man, uh, an old boyfriend the night before, and yada, yada, she feels tired uh, today. And then they have a long conversation about whether you can yada sex, right? Can you can you yada sex? Uh, I think Elaine says something like, oh, I've yachted sex. And they, they said, give us an example. And she says, I went out to dinner with a lawyer. We had great lobster bisque, yada, yada, yada. He never called me again. Um, <laughs> and so, th- so, Roger, this is sort of the Seinfeld writers obviously picking up this thing. They've heard people People, you know, doing the yada yada thing, and and it's an it's what you would call grammatically an elision, right? It's it's the dot 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 in, in a sentence, right. and the question, and there's there, there's a philosophical question being asked: What can you yada? What can you elide without describing? I mean, you, you do want to skip over something. Usually, it's the boring details, but if people are using it in a different way, that's the violation of some kind of linguistic compact. Yeah, I. I it was a word I was aware of, and it was a you know a use of people. It was something people used that I was familiar with. But I think after Seinfeld did yada yada, you talk about Seinfeld launching things into the public. I thought they ended it. I thought they did everything they could with that. And anybody who ever used yada 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 after that, I thought was oh you're you're too late. It's all over. Seinfeld right. ended that. Uh, Andy and John Rogers just said he hated he hated the show and he didn't think anything was funny about it. No, that's not what he said. I feel like I have a lot of power right now, though, that I can sort of uh, ascribe various sentiments I've been to. I've misinterpreted yes. before. <laughs> um, so, but actually, one of the things he does he did say is about the way in which Seinfeld did kind of sometimes almost preempt preempt these phrases and seize them and use them. I know that I I can no longer begin a sentence. And this is curb your enthusiasm, but I, it's all part of the same continuum. I can't do having said that without feeling this huge pang of guilt and having to stop and back up and kind of, you know, requalify that because it, it's so tainted uh, comically by, by what's been done to it. And I think yada yada might be in that sa- same category. And so, um, uh, Andy, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that first. I mean, does it seem maybe it's hard from within to, to, to think about that, but does it seem to you that Seinfeld did change the way language is used? 
And we lost Andy again. So I'm going to go over to John because I have a, a similar I have a similar question for you, which is, I mean, so much of what is in Seinfeld is kind of iconic. It's fundamentally iconic. And Peterman is iconic. You know, you've gone on to do all kinds of other things. You write music. You, you record music. You write books. Uh, you've. You've gone on to perform. You can do spam a lot very easily uh, and be King Arthur because, in some ways, that really is, you know, using it's, some. The same, it's the same character. Uh, King Arthur and Jay Peterman are just uh, the same people a thousand years removed. Yeah, or you're at least using some of the same comic chops. But is Peterman so iconic that it's going to be. I know you've done drama since that time, but is it hard? Do people just sort of see you and start laughing because they, they associate you with a certain kind of high comedy? It's funny that, that that has happened, and I have gotten that reaction before where, you know, my name will, or my, my face will pop up on a screen and people will start laughing uh, in a movie theater. Uh, but, yeah, it does kind of, it, it does kind of fun. But I don't mind that. You know, I really don't. The fact that I made some people smile and laugh and, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's kind of what you always hoped for. So the fact that it happens to fall on the com- comedic side, not the dramatic side, I'm fine with that. All right, uh, we're going to uh, grab a call or two here, 860-275-7266. We have lots of calls. Here's Rick in Cheshire. Hi, Rick. Hello. How are you? Good. Um, I have um, actually two sort of um, observations and was, was curious to hear what the panel had to say. When I began watching Kirby Enthusiasm, it seemed like Larry David was almost the darker, more neurotic soul of the show, and maybe Seinfeld was sort of the lighter, sweeter side. The, the second observation is that I've never thought the show is about nothing. It's more about how maybe comedy is written or thought of in that, you know, here's the premise that there's something weird or something that rubs us the wrong way that we haven't fully articulated, like double dipping or close talking. And the show just explained or elaborated on, on that premise and how it becomes funny. So just curious to hear what you all think about that. Well, I, 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 yeah, go I'll ahead. Jump in. Yeah, go sure. ahead. Sure. I'll jump in. I, and I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, never, I never really subscribed to the idea it was about nothing. I, I think what was masterful about Seinfeld was the way that it embraced minutia. And not only, not only singular minutia, but three types of minutia in every show because it was an A, B, and C storyline. And all of them would cross paths at one point in the show. And that was the brilliance of it. Well, not necessarily organically, but. Uh, Sometimes a little forced, but watching those three paths cross was uh, just genius. Um, but I think it was. It was about embracing minutiae. How far can you get down into minutiae? Right. And uh, one of the many questions that, that arose in my mind uh, as we were getting ready for the show, the caller just mentioned double dipping. I, I started wondering whether the phrase double dipping, referring to the dipping of a chip uh, that you've already bitten into, into dip, obviously the phrase double dipping has been around for a long time. But that usage, I, I was wondering, I'm, I'm unsure as to whether it's absolutely pinnable to Seinfeld, but it's a great example of minutiae. Let's hear that clip really quickly. Did you just double dip that chip? Excuse me? You double dipped the chip. Double dipped? What, what, what are you talking about? You dipped the chip, you took a bite, and you dipped again. So? That's like putting your whole mouth right in the dip. <laughs> From now on, when you take a chip, just take one dip and end it. Well, I'm sorry, Timmy, (laughs) but I don't dip that way. Oh, you don't, huh? No. You dip the way you want to dip. I'll dip the way I want to dip. Give me the chip! Hey, hey, hey! Uh, The overlay to that, of course, is it's all happening at a wake. Um, So... um, and and so, um, uh, Andy Robin, I think we have you back. I think I hear you uh, chuckling in the background. Yeah. So it, it, one of the things that, that it seems 
that Seinfeld also is mining. You know, John just said minutiae or somebody said minutiae um, is I mean, what do people really care about? People care about food. <laughs> they care about their clothes, what they're wearing. People care about uh, relationships and sex. I mean, in a way, this this show, rather than being about, no- did you ever buy the "this is a show about nothing" claim? Um, no, not at all. Um, I mean, nothing to some people. If you're super well adjusted and uh, you don't care about offending people too much, then maybe it's a show about nothing. But it's uh, but it's a show about. I think a lot of the comedy like that scene comes from fear of offending people or, or more, uh, more often than not, actually offending people. And I was just thinking that probably a lot of the writers, myself included, just happen to uh, offend people, family members or superiors or teachers early on in life with things that were just surprising to them. And it, made, it makes you hypersensitive to uh, to the rules of social etiquette and am I going to screw up and uh, will this person care about something that another per- that most people wouldn't care about? Um, I, I do think that it it is it's exactly as you said and I was even thinking uh, rewatching the Soup Nazi episode today. I just spent about three days in New York and I was realizing that it really does catch a, a certain kind of anxiety that you have about walking into a certain kind of place. And I'm from Connecticut, which means I'm a little more wishy-washy. When you're in New York, you walk into Murray's Bagel. You got to know what kind of bagel you want. You got to say it in a nice, clear voice. Uh, you know, they don't want to sit there and watch you dither through your choices that obviously the soup Nazi is this huge exaggeration of that, but it really is about a kind of anxiety. And, and I find yeah. myself walking in and kind of mentally rehearsing that I'm going to ask for an everything bagel with veggie cream cheese, kind of the way George does. Like, I don't want to screw it up. I want to do it right. I don't want to be the guy who's stalling the line. Right. Right. This fear that everybody else in the world knows the rules and you don't. Or, <laughs> yeah. Or that you're going to slip up in some unacceptable way. Um, Roger Catlin, we're going to go to break here in just a second, so it's a good time to ask you a question that Andy won't be able to hear your answer to. Um, so, um, you know, just to go back to the caller and the first part of his question, I do think that Seinfeld did at least fiddle with, in a really interesting way, the concept of ensemble. Okay, so ensemble comedies have been around forever. Uh, and and the, the notion was that, you know, you probably would have to, you're best off if you have this kind of moral locus at near the center of the ensemble comedy. So Mary Tyler Moore Show marries the moral locus. You know, then there's all kinds of other people who represent various, you know, perverted attitudes or cynicisms or, or, or whatever, or, or lyrical qualities. Uh, Peterman-esque lyrical qualities. Uh, Judd Hirsch does the same thing in Taxi. We could go on and on and on about this. And Seinfeld really, I don't know if they're the only, the, the, the first show to break the mold. You could probably come up with a few others. But they really sort of said, no, we're really not going to do it that way. I mean, to a certain degree, I guess Jerry Seinfeld is the quote-unquote moral compass of the show. But by most of the standards of most shows, he would have to be one of the sort of moral and behavioral outliers, Right. Well, they all think they have their own moral code. That's why they get into the big fights, and they they feel so strongly about everything. They and they can have these arguments about what seems like minutia, because they have decided uh, and they feel very strongly about these things. But at the same time, they're all amoral to the degree that the finale of Seinfeld has them all in jail and being uh, you know uh, charged for all their various crimes through the years. 
Um, I won't even try to repeat what Roger just said, but as we go into break here, he makes a really interesting point, uh, and I'll throw it out to, to both John and, and Andy Robin, which is it, it does seem in some ways maybe one of the other accomplishments of Seinfeld from a writing perspective. And, Andy, I'll start with you on this and then go to John, is that all of the characters seem like they think they're the star of the series, right? I mean, of of the four uh, protagonists, each one is so deeply rooted in his his or her own perspective that you know if, if you were to tell any one of these fictional characters you're in a comedy series, that person would absolutely assume that he or she was the focal point, right? Yeah, that sounds right. I, I think um, uh, that Kramer and Elaine are going to be uh, more opinionated. They, you know, w- whether it's whether it's a, a, a strong moral compass or, or an appropriate moral compass or not, I think those two probably had stronger feelings about etiquette and, uh, you know, how to behave. But, um, but yeah, I, I, and actually if there is a moral center to the show, I would say it's Kramer. He always he seems <laughs> to, to have the most stories where he was sympathizing with someone or chiding someone. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's that if you guys feel similarly. And well, and John, really, you're playing a character who also thinks he's the star of the series, right? I mean, Peterman basically no, thinks everybody he's else a legend. is. He's, a le- he's more than that. He's a legend in his own mind, of right. course. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think that one of the one of the things that you can discuss about Seinfeld was the fact that every character, every character on the show was kind of passionately dispassionate. I mean, you look at George. George swung from the middle rung on the ladder of life. He, all he wanted to be was mediocre. And he would defend his mediocrity with a passion unlike I've ever seen a character, which I think made the character the toughest character to play in the show. You know, Kramer had his physical comedy and and the absurdities and Peterman his and and everybody else had their. But George had to defend the middle of the road in every episode and do it with a tour de force passion that was um, um, just an, an extraordinary performance. But I think he also nails some real eternal truths. I mean, from the mouth of this absolute terminal schlemiel come these really profound statements about the human condition. The one that I repeat all the time is he says at some point something like the, the, the key to the success of any relationship is that each person has to secretly think he's getting a better deal. Uh, which, which is really true, I think, yep. you know, I mean, I, I think that kind of, uh, you know, it really does sort of sum up. <laughs> from a I, re- I remember in the Frogger episode, too, when George had his uh, his record score on the Frogger machine that was going to be dismantled when the uh, pizza shop closed. And uh, he finally turned to Jerry and he says, Jerry, I'm never going to have kids. This is all I have. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take this away from me. All right, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back with more of Roger and Andy and John. The funny thing is, I am wearing the panties my mother laid out for me this morning. Today's show was produced by Katie Pikus, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us a WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Keith Hernandez. For show pages, articles, and recipes from the Faith Middleton Show staff for Cinnamon Bobka, visit our website at WNPR.org. 
On tomorrow's show, can a computer produce an original piece of art? And now, back to Colin. It's even a little bit more complicated tomorrow. I don't know if I dare even try to explain it. But the question is, as uh, thinking machines become more sophisticated, they write novels, they produce works of fine art, is there still something human that's out of their reach? Anyway, we'll be talking about that with a very interesting group. We've got a very interesting group right now. We're talking about Seinfeld, now uh, 25 years old here in 2014. With us, Roger Catlin, a TV critic, Andy Robin, one of the writers and producers for Seinfeld, and John O'Hurley, the immortal Jay Peterman on Seinfeld. So, um, Andy Robin, Seinfeld is unusual not only in the sense that so many of its its linguistic turns and ideas wound up embedded in the culture, but I- at least one example of something that was never said on the screen it ha- has also persisted a little bit. Maybe not quite so uh, pervasively, but there's this uh, idea that Larry David had this rule, no hugging, no learning. Uh, that that was sort of one of the part of the code behind the scenes of Seinfeld. First of all, how true is that? How how often did one hear it? How rigidly was that enforced? Um, I think it was all sort of unsaid and understood that, you know, anybody who got hired wasn't um, too keen on writing stuff that was warm and fuzzy and uh, all about camaraderie and forgiveness. That We were just that that, uh, that was stuff that didn't really make us laugh. I mean, TV is filled with, with uh, shows you, that are less comedies and more warmities. They just kind of give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. And we wanted, you know, harder laughs. So for us, it was not just avoiding, um, you know, the, the hugs and talking about being there for other people, but also uh, tapping into the, the, uh, the darker side and, and doing things that are selfish, manipulative, uh, underhanded, secretive because that's uh, funnier. Um, and John O'Hurley, you know enough about the television business to know how hard this is to sell. You know, that that uh, I was talking to somebody else about well, the, the show Get a Life, the Chris Elliott show Get a Life. Uh, he told me that the Fox executives were kind of almost on the set all the time saying, well, at the end, Chris Elliott learns a lesson. He learns an important lesson, right? And they would say, no, he's a 36-year-old paperboy who lives with his parents. What lesson is he ever going to learn? But, I mean, commercially, John, this this is a difficult thing to sell to, sell to people. Oh, I don't know that Seinfeld would ever get off the ground right now it's i mean because i mean this was a show really and and uh, I'm, I'm just sensing this that this was a show that the network just backed off on and said deliver us a tape at the end of the week that we can just stick in the machine and let the country watch there was very very little um network oversight on the show uh because they trusted so much the vision of of uh, larry and uh and, and andy and his writers there uh and jerry as well uh that they really just there was an inherent trust in the show once the once it had ramped up to a certain level um and that just doesn't exist anymore on television the, the, there's such tight um scrutiny by the network and participation by the network each week no, uh, Roger Catlin, you probably know that your colleague Matt Zoller Seitz has made the argument that without Seinfeld, we wouldn't have quite what we had in the form of Tony Soprano, Walter White, all these characters who exist in in drama. I'm not sure I buy this argument, but 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 I think what uh, Matt is saying anyway is that uh, that this no hugging, no learning thing created a whole new set of expectations, not just in comedy, but even in drama. The 
that 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 characters could could exist in, in a different way, could be flawed and funny, and and um, Nate Fisher in Six Feet Under could sort of never really be rehil- rehabilitated. I can't even say that as a word. He can't be rehabilitated. I don't. Do you, do you buy that argument that that Seinfeld changed other things besides comedy? I hadn't thought about it that way, but uh, and it's quite a leap from Seinfeld to uh, a mob boss, but. Uh, I can see where he might be thinking that you can learn to love a character that has flaws, that has drawbacks, that is a little selfish, that has some has some parts of his personality that need to be working on. And you can continue to follow him. Um, and so the anti-hero in, in comedy might be something that certainly Seinfeld was one of the first to put and right so- up front. And so, I mean, the, the distinction uh, with uh, a lot of those characters, uh, obviously people like Tony Soprano and Nate Fisher exist on HBO. Walter White existed on AMC. Um, uh, so I'll go back to you uh, for uh, Andy Robin. You'll have the last word. We've got about 45 seconds left. Um, is, is it what is what's amazing about Seinfeld that you were able to do this on network TV before cable, before HBO and Showtime existed as a place to go experiment? Yeah, I, I think I was totally spoiled. I think um, it, it, it ruined me for other projects, and it was one of a kind. And, and uh, part of it was lack of network oversight early on, lack of micromanagement. And also there were fights early on. Jerry and Larry uh, stuck together, and they said, we won't do the show unless we can do it our way. And, um, you know, they called the network's bluff, and they managed to stay on the air. So I, I feel like they really threaded a needle and I feel really lucky um, that I got to work on it. All right. We feel very lucky that we've gotten to talk to uh, John O'Hurley, uh, to Andy Robin, and to Roger Catlin today. Uh, thanks very much also to Katie Pikus, part of our Fab Five team of interns. We're uh, losing them one by one. Uh, it's breaking my heart. They've been incredible. But Katie Pikus uh, was instrumental in uh, pulling this whole show, show together. And thanks to everybody else who helped out. We'll be back tomorrow with Humanities, the humanities of computers. I'm Kyone Wolf. What's the deal with the Colin McEnroe show? You could turn it off at any time. I prefer the theater where the audience is trapped.